Within the Baha'i faith, one of the basic tenets of it is the oneness of humanity and an understanding that we're all children of the one same creator. Like a flower garden, that there's all these different flowers and that they all bring a sense of beauty to what humanity is. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Jan Saeed. She served as the Director of Spiritual Life at Westminster College since 2007, has been involved in many ways in issues of peace, interfaith relations, and race issues. She's a member of the Baha'i Faith and serves with that faith community in lots of volunteer positions with local, regional, national strategic planning councils. That's a big mouthful, but you're just a great person from everything I've read, and I'm thrilled to meet you in person. Jan Saeed, thank you for speaking with us in good faith. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So you grew up in Idaho Falls, Idaho. You've been in Salt Lake City since 77. Walk us through kind of your early exposure to any belief of faith or God. Tell us that journey a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. Growing up in Idaho Falls was a wonderful, small, 35,000 people, and mostly members of the LDS faith, for sure. It was a very small community. Just We'd go to Salt Lake City to go to the big city, and I can remember always enjoying that. But it was a great growing up with good friends, mostly Mormon, but I can remember my friends being of Methodist and Lutheran background as well. And on our little street, Maplewood Drive, we would have these conversations as little five, six, seven, eight-year-olds and talking about our religion. And we felt like we were such authorities on the diversity of our faith traditions. Your first interfaith council, age five. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty small, pretty young. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember my parents, my mom as the daughter of Swedish immigrants up in Seattle in the Northwest. And her first language was Swedish. And her mom would read the Bible daily, but didn't really participate in a religious group. It was really the Vasa Park and the Swedish community that that they were a part of. And she grew up very much in love with the Bible and that God was a part of our lives, her life. She married my father, who was also of a Christian background, But in Idaho Falls, one of her friends at the Methodist Church that she had been going to um, and found a good home for for her faith at that time introduced her to a speaker, an article that was in the newspaper that down at the Bonneville Hotel, there was going to be a speaker on the Baha'i faith. I think I was about five years old at this time, and I can remember going to Sunday school and going to church at the Methodist Church and enjoying it and resonating with the spiritual aspect to who I was, that it was an important part of my being. But I can remember my mom starting to take me to Baha'i children's classes as well. At the same time, my mom went to that meeting and she said, wow, this is exactly what I've always believed. But she loved her Methodist minister and didn't want to let him down and felt like that she could be both at the same time. Mm. But after about two years of that, she decided that this really needed, she needed to be true to her heart. And so from about six or seven years old, I was attending Baha'i things. But as I said, on the neighborhood street, there was always this conversation of going to different religions and going to different places with my Lutheran and Mormon and Methodist 
and now myself as a Baha'i, and to try to understand what that meant to each of us. Um, my dad became a Baha'i a few years later. His religion was usually considered PhD chemist, but <laughs> unbeknownst to my mom, he had been studying and reading the writings and the scriptures behind her back, sort of, because we were at a meeting, and I'm downstairs in the little house of one of the Baha'is, and we were playing some games, and somebody came running down and said, your dad has become a Baha'i, and I couldn't believe it. I didn't. I just didn't really think of my dad as religious. Not that he wasn't, either. He was a very kind and loving person, but I go up the stairs because other kids came down and said, you know, your dad has just become a Baha'i. And so I go up there, and I hear his voice, and he's reading a prayer. Baha'is believe very profoundly in the power of prayer. And I kind of inside felt like laughing, because I was so foreign to me to hear my dad saying these words. And yet for me, my little Baha'i prayer book that my mom had given me was so important to me. And even to this day, the prayers that I memorized as an early in my early childhood are things that I turn to. Mm. In fact, even before starting this conversation with you, in my head I'm saying this little phrase that just gives me comfort in times of stress, like, oh, am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to mm. do the right thing here? It, so the power it, of prayer is very important. Hearing my dad a, say that was, was very profound for me. Is that a prayer you'd be comfortable sharing? Certainly. There's two prayers that often come to my mind in times when I just want a short little phrase. And mm -hmm. the one that I said just before talking to you is called the Remover of Difficulties Prayer by Baha'is. So if you say, oh, let's say the Removers of Difficulties. And one of the cultural things that Baha'is sometimes do will say a repetition of the same prayer as many faith traditions have this, this repetition that is kind of a meditation time, too. But this prayer is very short. It's like two sentences, and it goes as this. Is there any remover of difficulty save God? Say, praise be God. He is God. All are his servants, and all abide by his bidding. Short and a nice acknowledgment of the power. Even though it's the remover of difficulties, I still came back in the room and we're still doing the interview. That's right. Hopefully, so that was not the difficulty, obviously. Oh, good. I, 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 I'm glad that it, to be exonerated from yeah, that. Yeah, there's a lot of jokes about that. Is is the removal going to mean that I'm going to get gone because I was the problem? <laughs> you know? But it's, it's a, a nice, very short, very calming, as any... Uh, I think person of faith feels like there's this communion with God that kind of calms us down and just yeah. makes us breathe a little slower, a little so more carefully. when you would go to services or school or recite a prayer on your own, what conception did you have, your earliest, of what God was or who God was? I think the unknowable essence is the word that comes to mind for me about what God is. or mm. In the Baha'i faith, that terminology is used that God is not a person. That would be God in our image. Mm. And Baha'is believe very much that God is the creator of the unknowable essence, neither male nor female, that beyond any comprehension of our mind. And the only way that we can know God is through the holy ones that God sends from time to time. And if when looking at history, you can see that they've come at different times to different people, these holy ones that have brought a book, a message, the mm. Bible, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, Baha'u'llah's Katabi Iran and Akdas, that these books, these holy books, the Book of Certitude, the Book of Laws, these books give us guidance for 
each day and each culture. And in fact, the spiritual teachings overlap. You can find the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, in all these religions. And there's certain other things, that there is an unknowable essence or there's a source of creation, and that we should worship and adore that. There is a prayer that goes, I bear witness, O my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. I testify at this moment to my powerlessness and to thy might, to my poverty and to thy wealth. There is none other God but thee, the help in peril, the self-subsisting. That this puts who is God, the unknowable, the self-subsisting. In many of the Baha'i prayers that were revealed by Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, they say of the ultimate expression of the attributes of God, such as the unknowable, the all-knowing, the all-wise, the all-powerful. So from day to day, you acknowledge that higher power and dependence on God. I might just ask you what observances you have. What helps you the most personally? Obviously, prayer is one of those. You've been really clear on that. <laughs> yes, definitely. I think communion with God, it's, it's like if, there, if there's something that you love in your life, you want to commune with it. And if you have a relationship with someone, you want to call out to them. You want to hear their voice and be in communion with them. If it's a child or a parent or a partner, that you want to be and hear that they're okay and that you can have a conversation both ways. And, and to me, prayer is conversation with God. And so it's that conversation with that essence that's higher than us and kind of keeps us in check. One of the Baha'i teachings that resonates with me very much is reading the Baha'i writings or reading scripture every morning and every night and to say prayers. There's obligatory prayers in the Baha'i faith. And you can choose which one. There's a short, medium, and long prayer. And the short one is you have to say between lunchtime or noon and sunset. I, being a short prayer kind of person, (laughs) choose that one. I've got that one memorized and uh, it comes easily to me. There's a long prayer that's once within every 24 hours and a medium prayer that should be recited three times a day. So depending on where people come from their own spiritual path, some people come from the Islamic beliefs and for them when it's five times a day, three times seems, you know, like, oh, that's not so much, but still it's more than one time a day. So they might relate to that, someone that comes from a humanist or atheistic background to becoming a by, you know, the short prayer might be just good enough and, and, <laughs> and enough to um, nurture their soul, so... For you, that kind of communication, do you feel that there's a return communication or a way that you perceive answers or direction from God? Yeah, I think that process of listening is huge. And sometimes in conversations with friends that we talk about, whether Baha'is or or friends of many different beliefs, that is there that confirmation that this is the right thing to do? And are you hearing the voice of God to you? I mean, or what is the voice of God? Or what, how is that, that sense of understanding to yourself? And for me, there's that, that voice inside, actually, that it feels like, that you just kind of ask these questions out to the universe. And sometimes it's very, very clear, and other times it's super fuzzy, and there's like nothing there. And you're going, hmm. But ultimately, there's a sense of confirmation that thinking that this the door is all open. This seems mm. to be the right way. This is what I'll take for now. And if I hit a 
barrier, then maybe that's a message to me as well. But it could be the message that you need to try harder. You didn't do these steps. So that's that internal conversation that, okay, was this a confirmation from God or is this? I should have done this, this, and this that I thought I should have done and I didn't do. So You have to be willing to uh, be instructed, I suppose, as well. Yeah, I think really listening. So people's beliefs usually inform what they do on a daily basis. And it seems to me that it's maybe even informed your choice of profession. Well, I think I fell into this profession more than, or it chose me rather than me choosing it. (laughs) I think I've always admired people that were so driven to do one thing their whole life. And even as a very small child that they, oh, I know I'm going to be a doctor or a fireman or I'm going to be an Olympic athlete. And I was never that person. I just loved everything. Uh I just wanted to know about a lot of different things. And um, I was very blessed to have a loving family that gave me opportunity, road trips. We travel a fair amount on road trips from Idaho. And relatives lived up in Seattle area, so we'd road trip once or twice a year. And just meeting people in different cities and seeing the different sites made me really love to learn about different people and and differences. And within the Baha'i faith, one of the basic tenets of it is the oneness of humanity and an understanding that we're all children of the one same creator. For me, that sense of diversity and understanding what that is, like a flower garden, that there's all these different flowers and that they all bring a sense of beauty to what humanity is, whether it's the diversity of shape, gender, race, culture, language, the way we speak, that all of those things I grew to very much appreciate. And I have to say that it was due to that I had this very loving home of a mother and father that believed those beliefs. So in that creating opportunities through summer schools that were Baha'i or going to conferences or... um, I can remember traveling to Hawaii when I was 15, and the rose garden of humanity that was there was so different than what you would normally see in Idaho Falls. But even within the Baha'i community in Idaho, we'd go to Blackfoot and to the Indian Reservation and meet our Baha'i brothers and sisters there. And I don't think everyone else that I grew up with had the exact same relationship that my moms, quote-unquote, two African-American women. That you didn't see a lot of African Americans on the streets of Idaho Falls, but here every week in my Baha'i community, my moms, these other women that were part of my growing up and spiritual life, were these beautiful, chocolate-skinned, lovely ladies that I I love very much. You gave me a card that has some of the the main tenets of the Baha'i faith. Oneness of God, oneness of religion. There's uh, about 11 of these. One of them, I was looking up a statement from the Universal House of Justice, which is part of the directorate. What's the best word? The, the leading council? At the Baha'i administration. Yeah, yes, thank you. So it says, the great peace towards which people of goodwill throughout the centuries have inclined their hearts of which seers and poets for countless generations have expressed their vision and for which from age to age the sacred scriptures of mankind have constantly held the promise is now at long last within the reach of the nations. And this next line of particular importance, I thought, for the first time in history, it is possible for everyone to view the entire planet with all its myriad diversified peoples in one perspective. World peace is not only possible, but inevitable. 
possible. I've thought of, but inevitable. This is you're opening my mind a little with this, and you really have taken part in this in interfaith movements. Uh, even with the Olympics, you were one of the chaplains at bringing people all around the world. Uh, this seems to me like it's a very important thing to you. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me about this. So the oneness of humanity and the the not only possibility. But the inevitability of world peace are basic fundamentals of the Baha'i faith, and that it is our I really duty. Like that idea. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> then let's partner. Let's let's work on it. <laughs> I think you are working on it. This program, I think, is one of those things that helps to work on it. Uh, one that, of our hopes. Yeah. I think when we start listening to one another, we start learning about each other. We start realizing. Just as many great teachers, Martin Luther King, having just passed the holiday recently, you know, spoke about how we don't know each other, so we fear each other. Mm. But when we break down those barriers and we actually listen and we engage with one another, we realize how much we do have in common. And those things that are different are what bring the beauty of the rose garden, the flower garden. So when you are working uh, as director of spiritual life at Westminster College— I mean, there might be a question, who needs a director of spiritual life if it's not Notre Dame or BYU? Uh-huh. Well, Westminster College, by the name, was originally a Presbyterian hmm. school, one of 40 here in Utah. And sitting here at BYU, you know, one of the reasons these Presbyterians were working on that was to save the world <laughs> from what else was happening in this state. So it has really evolved to, what, we have a Baha'i as the spiritual life director? That's kind of dramatic from being somewhat polarized to extremely inclusive. Mm. And as you mentioned, though, it, it totally makes sense that someone with the ideals of bringing the world together and concentrating on world peace, that in a school like Westminster, where they have learning goals such as global consciousness, social responsibility, ethical awareness, respect for diverse people and their perspectives, that someone with a Baha'i perspective might fit just fine in that position. Yeah, fine or be perfect for it. Are there things that you have struggled or wished to know or understand that you don't and you just have to say, this I take on, on faith? I think that could be true and certainly would be true at different points in my life. But maybe where I'm at right now, I'm pretty comfortable with accepting things on faith that I've been through the process of questioning. Mm. And actually in the Baha'i calendar, one of the months is called questions, that it's something that Baha'is are encouraged to do is to question. And I think that there's a question that is more often asked is, what do you believe in faith or what do you take for faith? And I, I take for faith that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. I don't question that. And so I think that there's some things in the spiritual realm that reflect that physical realm of faith. And I see so many things on the physical reality that I've learned to accept that they will happen. The sun will come up tomorrow, <laughs> as the song says, or something to along those lines. Annie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that there's things that in the spiritual realm that might have created questions to my mind, but I've I've pondered on a lot of those and kind of come up with some answers for myself. So I, I really I'm quite satisfied that there is a creator, that the teachings, the divine teachings that are sent down from time to time 
with the Baha'i Faith and the teachings of Baha'u'llah as the latest in a continuing revelation, that these make sense to me and that they actually give me that sense of confirmation when I follow them Hmm. versus, oops, step to the side a little bit, as we all do. (laughs) So if you... If we could give you a soapbox to stand on and say, you have five minutes and everybody in the world is going to hear what you have to say. Well, I'm not a really good soapbox person, so I would have to get all muster up all my courage, first of all, because <laughs> I'm kind of an introvert that looks like an extrovert. So it's it would I'd muster it up just like coming here to talk to you today. And I would say and shout from the mountaintops that the oneness of humanity is just blatant and it is the most important principle that we should create every sense of justice based on it, Hmm. that anything we do in our lives, if we can think that, is this good for everyone, then it may be good to be part of our laws and part of our ways of being in society. The oneness of humanity and the respect, as Westminster's statement, respect for diverse people and their perspectives, that we can be life-affirming to everyone that they may not all believe the exact same thing that we do, but out of our love for the Creator, we should love and honor creation. One of these other points, as I'm looking over them, is spiritual solutions to economic problems. That's so global, but to bring that down to a personal level, what does that mean to you even? So I think with any organization, there is giving to the funds of that organization to help promote Uh, mm -hmm. the beliefs of What's happening, whether it's the Humane Society and you want to help all the stray animals in the world, people give money so that it can be helped, that we have some order, that we don't have stray dogs all over the street suffering, but that they can be taken care of. On the very, That's the very minute, and I care very much about animals, and so that's one that comes to my mind very quickly. But what do we do in our own communities for everyone, that there's this sense of giving to any kind of organization that will help? And in The principles of the Baha'i faith, seeking this understanding of the oneness of humanity and that all people should be respected and that this is part of God's law for this day and age, that we can't have justice for some unless we have justice for all, Um, and equality of the the sexes, equality of the race, these principles need to be promoted. So from one standpoint, that economic solution is – promoting these teachings so that it can spread farther, that people will respect and want to learn to talk and communicate with each other to create spaces and laws that will be just for all people. Another way is um, within the Baha'i system of governance, there's something called the law of the right of God. And a certain percentage of your income, no one does this for you, it's totally Mm self-generated, gives to a Baha'i fund. after all of their living expenses and everything is taken care of, a certain percentage. And, and that's totally up to the individuals. And then that is spread throughout the world by the governing body of the Baha'is. And so that is given. Nobody knows how much anybody gives. It's not recorded by anyone but you as an individual sending mm. it forward. And so there are things that are social and economic development projects that are all over the world that the Baha'is are helping to create a more sense of justice globally. What should I ask you that I don't know to ask you or that you you would think, oh, I really hope I get to talk about this? I think on my own personal journey that you, you mentioned earlier, one of the stories that impacted me a lot was as a child and and also having my children and having a repeat of the same kind of a story that was hurtful was when I was a child, I can remember listening to a radio program. And I was, again, six, seven or eight 
very new into the Baha'i faith. And someone called into a talk show that was going on, similar to this, and said, oh, those Baha'is, they're devil worshipers. And Baha'is don't even believe in the devil. And so they don't understand Baha'is believe in the goodness of God and that absence from God is is maybe the concept more of hell than that there is an existence of a devil or anything like that. So there was a lack of understanding. And to be told that I was a devil worshiper when that wasn't even part of the concepts of the Baha'i faith and the ignorance that was there was very hurtful because I can remember asking my mom, do we, are we devil worshipers? And, you know, of course she said, no, this person doesn't understand and doesn't know that Baha'is are lovers of all humanity and lovers of God and the light and One of the Baha'i teachings, so powerful is the light of unity, it can illumine the whole earth, is something that resonates with me so much because when there's darkness or ignorance, people can judge one another and and turn away. Mm. When my child, my youngest, was six or seven, he comes home from kindergarten and he says, growing up in Salt Lake City, Mom, do I have a bad religion? Is our religion a bad religion? And I felt back to my days of when I was that age. Oh, yeah, you'd remember that exact moment. And to hear it a generation later that we hadn't moved much farther, and of course to say to my child, no, we have a good religion, that person doesn't understand or doesn't know. When you work with such diverse groups or people from diverse religions or or groups, what are the barriers? Is it just fear? Is it just that people haven't taken the effort or, or been afraid to know somebody else? I think certainly those are part of it. Mm -hmm. I think that lack of knowledge and opportunity are two keys to why there's the divisions. Education, opportunity, and encouragement are three things that I feel help change and transform ourselves that can help transform the world. And so little by little, as people gain education, they want to learn about different things. Opportunity is... If you don't have anyone else in your community that is of a different religion, you have no opportunity. Mm. And encouragement or discouragement happens on the part of the generation before us. And if you have no education, opportunity, or encouragement, we stay in our silos. But if you are given education and you are given opportunities and encouragement, I think that's when you see the quickest and fastest change. Boy, so just project that to the global scale. And every day we see people railing against one another. And really, uh, the only way to get support is to kind of portray the people who think differently as sometimes even not quite human. It's always been a very sad part of human nature to want to have the other, to have something to fear, something that builds the tribe together against something Mm. else. But with education and knowledge, we can find that, no, maybe the other isn't that, and that maybe from a more spiritual basis, the other is the ego and selfishness rather than it is another human being. Hmm. I'm wondering if you think of faith as something mysterious and ethereal or practical, or what is the mix? between those two, or am I even, am I leaving out an ingredient? So I love this phrase, walk a spiritual path with practical feet, that it's a combination of the two, that this physical reality is simply a mirroring of the spiritual and vice versa, Mm. that we learn from both of them. And so it's not one or the other, that they're very intertwined and interconnected. 
I'm kind of wanting to leave this conversation adding, really adding to my prayers that it is possible for everyone to view the entire planet in one perspective, world peace, not only possible, but inevitable. Thank you for bringing that to me and for everything else you've shared, speaking with us in good faith. Thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll take a little bit of time to talk about the origins of the Baha'i faith and some basic teachings. And we'll listen to our panel as they discuss the ideas presented by our guest, Jan Saeed. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. The best estimates aren't exact, but they say that over 5 million Baha'is live and worship in 188 countries around the world today. A full retelling of the origins of the Baha'i faith would take longer than we have, but here's a very brief summary. A young Persian man took the name Bab, B-A-B, which in Arabic means gate or door. And in 1844, he announced that he was the bearer of a divine revelation which would change the spiritual life of humanity. The Bab taught that there would be a second messenger from God, one greater than he is. The second messenger's mission would be to bring about an age of peace and justice. In that way, the Bab is comparable, perhaps, to John the Baptist, who told about a coming one who would be greater than himself. In Christianity, that greater one is Jesus Christ. In Baha'i, it is Baha'u'llah. The Bab and his followers were persecuted, and he was eventually killed. This promised second messenger of God had been a follower of the Bab, and though he was born to a wealthy family and was offered a post in the government, he refused it and had more interest in helping the poor. He took the name of Baha'u'llah, meaning the glory of God. He had a vision from God showing him God's will for humanity while he was imprisoned in Tehran in 1852, In 1863, he shared that he was the promised one, the Bab foretold. The Baha'is see him as the latest prophet or manifestation of God given to mankind. These prophets also include Moses, Jesus, Abraham, Krishna, Muhammad, Buddha, and others whose purpose was to create the world's great religions and show humanity how to worship God. According to the Baha'is, these messengers were sent by a loving creator in order to bring people to a place to worship him. Baha'u'llah was imprisoned or exiled for over 40 years in which he wrote over 100 volumes of religious writings that the Baha'i community follow today. Baha'u'llah died in exile in Palestine in 1892. The Shrine of the Bab is in Haifa in present-day Israel, and the Shrine of Baha'u'llah is an hour north of Haifa in present-day Akko. Eleven basic teachings of the Baha'i are oneness of God, oneness of religion, oneness of humankind, equality of women and men, unity of science and religion, independent search for truth, elimination of prejudice, 
universal education, spiritual solutions to economic problems, a universal auxiliary language, and universal peace upheld by a commonwealth of nations. You can find more at Baha'i.org, B-A-H-A-I. While the Baha'i faith had its origins in Persia, it now has adherents all across the world, and the worship and language and even the music of Baha'is reflect the cultures in which the believers themselves live. Unite and bind together. earliest memories of religious experience? Was prayer one of them? And has that continued throughout your life? Do you ever feel threatened by other people with differing religious beliefs? Do you believe in the actual oneness of humanity, that we are all children of the same Creator? And what does that mean for how you live your life? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Adam Johnson is the father of four, a lover of tacos and of film, Christy Lindstrom, mother of four who loves tennis, reading, and the New York Yankees. Mauro Properzi is the father of four who teaches world religions. He loves traveling and learning about different people and cultures. He's originally from northeastern Italy and enjoys Italian food and, as you would expect, soccer. Daniel Souza is a husband and father of two girls who dreams of competing in professional barbecue competitions. It was a pleasure to listen to Jen Said. I found uh, several things that I can connect with when I think back about my own life, beginning really with childhood. She talks about uh, being uh, five when uh, there was a religious conversion in her family when her mother um, became a Baha'i and how that led her to her own uh, faith experience. I was about four years of age when my parents became um, members of the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They became Mormons. And that conversion uh, time is something that I remember uh, vividly. I remember them uh, meeting with uh, missionaries from the church, and uh, I remember them playing with me. I was only four years old at the time. It felt very much like life changed uh, radically at the time, that I started to go to a different place for the first time, to meet new people, to do new things like praying together and talking about scriptures and things like that. So in many ways, I think of that time as the uh, beginning of my spiritual life, and that's where I, I found quite a few commonalities with uh, what she was sharing. It was interesting to hear – it's always interesting to hear accounts of others' uh, childhoods and, and how they grew up with a certain religion and how their faith evolved. Uh, for me, I, I grew up with um, – I was um, a child – only child of a single mother in the LDS faith. 
because of my mom's work schedule, she was a nurse and a lot of times she had to work on Sundays. So she provided a good framework of religion and, and faith and taught me how to pray and all these things. But when it really came time for me to do the things that that framework set me up for, it was mostly on my own. She had to work most Sundays. And so I had to kind of uh, find my way to church. And fortunately, we had, there was some good people there that, that kind of, you know, let me sit and annoy them on the church uh, pews. But it was an interesting experience for me because it, it was things that I had to kind of evolve on my own for the most part. And my mom was, was not, I think over time, she, she wasn't very active in our, our church. So I had to kind of carry that through, especially formative years in, in um, junior high and high school. And then my mom eventually came back around and, and has probably even stronger faith and myself. And it's interesting how maybe for some of those years, I was her support when she needed it. And, and then now she is, she's a great support to me. What I find interesting is the timeline for each of us is different. We don't always understand what God's timeline and what, what he has in store for us. And, and we see other people who may struggle and We don't know what's exactly in store for them. I like what she said about the oneness of God and the oneness of religion and how the Baha'i faith seems to be very open to lots of different faiths and really being genuine and respectful of people of diverse backgrounds. I, as a child, was Presbyterian. So to hear her say, you know, I'm from this area, at least now, I also grew up in Idaho, I don't think I knew Westminster was a Presbyterian college. I probably should know that. So the first five years of my life, I was part of the Presbyterian faith and remember going to those services. And then my mother also converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that was a much different experience, which has shaped my life. But I also have other members of my family who have chosen other faiths. We have Judaism as part of our family. And having those different backgrounds and people that I love that have different beliefs. When she talked about her experience as a child and having the caller on the radio show call in and accuse them of being devil worshipers, I mean, that's very traumatic for a child. I think it can be traumatic for adults as well. But, you know, I think back to when I was younger and I grew up in a very small town. The predominant faith was Roman Catholic. There was a small Roman Catholic school there, different religions, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist. And at the time, there was a piece of media that came out about the LDS faith that was very negative and probably wasn't the way that we wanted to be represented in a a community that small. And as a child, I guess I was in junior high, it was very, it's stressful because you're trying to fit in and you don't want your friends to look at you weird. <laughs> so I really that really resonated with me, having an experience like that in my youth. And I think that was the first time I really realized how important it is. Even if we don't believe the same things, we should respect others' beliefs and really try to learn about them. Because there is a commonality between the different faiths, and we all have a piece of something that has truth 
that we can relate to and treat each other well based on that. This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Jan Saeed. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Now back to the conversation. I can relate very well with being a minority. She talks about her experience moving to Salt Lake City with her parents at a young age. I was born and raised in Brazil, and I was about nine when my family moved to southern Brazil, a completely different area that I was used to. And I always felt very comfortable with other faiths and other religions. Most of my friends happened to be Roman Catholic, as it is the case with a lot of the Latin countries. But I had lots of different faiths in our neighborhood. And But I remember first day of school in this new town, and I was, quite frankly, somewhat worried. I didn't have any friends. I didn't really know anybody. And being afraid, I didn't really understand the system. It was a different school system. Some traditions were a little different. And I remember vividly, uh, and this is in third grade, when everybody lined up for, for lunch, it was a different system than what I used to to know uh, to the Catholic school that I had attended back in the capital of Brazil where I used to live. I thought I was in the right line. I ended up being in the wrong line. And this kid that was right behind me was really upset that I took his spot in line. And we ended up getting in a, a bit of a fight, had to be separated, and I didn't really understand it. And, and I said, you know what, forget about it. And went on with my life. Well, Sunday comes around, and who would have known that out of the minority of Mormons and I was probably one out of three in my entire school of about 2,000. That very kid was attending the same congregation that I was attending with my family. I couldn't believe it. And so as I listened to Jen speak about understanding each other and, and knowledge and trying to listen, I was, so, I was so grateful that she talked so much about listening. And she talked specifically one of the— one of the lines that really stood out to me says, the process of listening is huge. And as I go back to my childhood and I think, gosh, if I had just listened or asked or vice versa to that other Mormon boy that I ultimately became really good friends with but started out through a fight in, in a different school, I think we would have been able to understand each other and to really welcome each other and, and build on commonalities rather than trying to fight over something that now seems so silly. I think it's interesting when you talk about uh, a minority status that there's also the the experience of um, evolving your own identity in terms of how you perceive yourself to be a minority. As I said, growing up as a small religious minority in Italy, in, in my case, often perceived, um, I guess, the dominant uh, religion to be the the primary, if you want to use the term, uh, competitor. But really, when I think back of uh, of the time, I didn't really know that many people who were religious. And and with time, I recognized that I was a minority just in being a person of faith. And when I look back at other experiences I had in my life, uh, my my studies in particular, what I where I actually uh, study religious studies, and uh, and I found increasingly natural to gravitate toward other people of faith, 
because we were all confronted with uh, readings and philosophies and ideas that really challenged uh, our own beliefs. And at that point, what seemed to matter most was that, that God was a foundation for all of us. And I think that possibly this is going to become the, the greater challenge from now and in the future, at least in certain parts of the world, where the, the theological differences between different denominations, although they continue to be important markers of identity, uh, they may not be as important as the reality that uh, we have faith in God, and, uh, and that's something that can unite us. Um, Jan had mentioned, well, one of, one of the first things she talked about was the power of prayer. And in her faith, they, they would recite prayers of comfort and, and uh, prayers for, for all sorts of situations. Um, I think that's one of the things that unites every, every religion is this communion. She, she mentions the communion with God and that you want to call out to them. Um, I, I know in my in my experience that's always been a great source of comfort and it kind of evolves. It had different stages depending on where I was in my life. But I can I can recall something that was really touching to me was when I understood that God cared about what mattered to me. And it wasn't necessarily maybe a religious thing. So, for example, um, I've worked in uh, video production for the last 15 years. And this, uh, this one time, this other company I worked for in California, we had a big uh, production, uh, and it required me to, to drive about three hours, and we were going to start shooting the next morning. So I was living down in Orange County. We had to drive up to Thousand Oaks. And with L.A. traffic and everything, that's a, that's a long, long trip. But I recall packing up everything and checking, making sure I had everything I needed. And the whole drive up, I was just irritated. And it wasn't just the L.A. traffic. There was just something irritating me. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't put um, place a finger on it. And when I got to the hotel that night, we had an early call the next morning, like 6 a.m., and I had just this, this irritating feeling. I got down on my knees and, and said a prayer, and instantly I understood what that irritation was. It was I had forgotten a key, uh, some memory cards for the camera back at the office down in Orange County, and without it, we weren't going to have a shoot. I probably would have been fired. Who knows? But that answer came to me, and instantly the, that irritation went away. And just a flood of gratitude. I didn't care. I had to drive back <laughs> th- th- two, three hours, and then back, and then I wouldn't get much sleep that night. I was so relieved, and also I had so much gratitude that that God cared about my situation enough to remind me and 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 give me this you know um, this answer and help me in that situation and it really it really helped me in my professional life and not not necessarily a, a spiritual or church related 
event, but in a practical way. I liked at the beginning how she said she was a little nervous and she was talking about their prayers that they have and there's different lengths and different things. And she shared the one about the remover of difficulties, I think is what she said. And it kind of reminded me a little bit about what you were just saying, Adam, you know, it helps calm her down a little bit and just breathe and be able to do the things that you need to. I have something I'd like to share, Christy. As we listen to her and as we listen to this idea of always being open to reading scriptures, I mean, that takes discipline, right? It takes discipline to read their scriptures every morning, I think is what she said. Choosing multiple prayers throughout the day. I couldn't help but think of it takes humility to follow such constant practices. And I think as we place ourselves in that humility, we try to take a step back and look at a life differently. We start to appreciate things and the small things. She talked a lot about throwing your prayer out into the universe and, and having these, you know, these questions. I loved that in the Baha'i faith, they talk about having a month solely dedicated to questions to be able to, I mean, that resonated really well with me. I have my younger brother ever since we were little wanted to be an airline pilot. He always wanted to be a pilot. He always wanted to fly something that I don't share at all with him. During my growing up, I've always struggled because I didn't have one defined career or profession that I wanted to do. And at times, I would find myself constantly asking questions. Do I want to be this? Do I want, do I want to do that? I've had so many interests. I mean, just like her, she talks a lot about things that she likes to do and really wanting to explore and you know, I, I love dancing, I love cooking, I love learning, and I love all these different things. And how does that relate to me? And gosh, could I be a successful actor while still being a chef, while teaching dance? You know, where do I find my my niche? Where am I at? And so I, I think the humility and the constant desire to learn, to understand, to improve, and to be better um, is something that really spoke to me. And my brother today is an airline pilot, and good for him, you know. And, and I think I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, but that's okay because I'm having fun at it. And I'm learning to just enjoy the journey rather than really try to understand that the destination is the only reward to this. It isn't. And I think, Daniel, when it comes to prayer, she also talked about uh, the struggle that can uh, come when you're trying to discern, for lack of a better term, what what God wants from you and uh, how do you interpret a barrier? Is it uh, a sign that you need to try harder or is it an indication you need to uh, change direction? And I can really relate to that. Um, you know, one of the big decisions I made in my life was, of course, coming to this country, moving and, and starting life in a completely different place. And uh, I remember the the struggles and the questions and the fears of uh, uh, what should I be doing and, and even people in my own community sometimes discouraging me from it uh, for a number of different reasons and what I think is really interesting in what she said is she talked about if you want to use the term uncertainty um, as something that can coexist with a security you know what is faith um, do you make decisions based on faith. Uh, and, you know, when I think of faith, I think uh, um, 
you know, here's a little bit of my training coming in, but but the the Latin uh, of the word really means trust. And so when you have trust in God, uh, there is going to be a lot of uncertainty because there are a lot of details that you don't know. But you don't need to know all the details. You just need to know that you can trust your guide and and that is sufficient. And so in that way, it seems like you can allow for uncertainty to exist and still enjoy the journey, as you're saying, because you are rooted in that trust, in that one certainty that is the one that matters most. I did like what she said when she said, you know, this I take on faith, uh, what Mara was just talking about. Jan said that she'd already been through the process of questioning and that the Baha'i faith encourages them to question their faith and ask questions. And I think that's really important to question, like what Daniel said a little bit earlier about that whole month of questioning helps me, you know, reexamine what do I take on faith and what are those things that I can question and what are those things that I know that I can just take on faith and, and, and just know everything's going to be okay. But there's just one more thing that I'd like to say. And I really loved what she said about listening to one another. And I think that really helps encompass this whole interfaith, this peace that she talked about, racial relations, different things. She talked about how, you know, we don't know each other sometimes, and so we fear each other. But what's really, uh, the differences bring the beauty of the Rose Garden when you bring all these different people together from different races, religions, walks of life. Um, It creates the beauty of what we have here as a human race and and here on earth. Christy, I love that. I didn't know a thing about Baha'is before, and I can't help but just really, it resonates really well with me. I love especially one of our closing lines, which was, walk a spiritual path with practical feet. I mean, that just seems like it's just the right thing to do, to look for knowledge and understanding, and you know, but really try to cherish the the differences that we have with mutual respect and really building on commonality and these human values. i really, really impressed. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Adam, Christy, Morrow, and Daniel, and especially to Jan Saeed for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation, and we welcome your thoughts and ideas about our program. Email us at ingoodfaith@byu.edu and find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. The song Unite by Ali Youssefi is used by permission Find more of his work online at youtube.com. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Our associate producers are Christine Knockleby and Marcus Smith. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon, right here, In Good Faith.